of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you've given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me I have given to them and they have received them and know in truth that I came from you. And they've believed that you sent me. I'm asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I've been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy God, protect them in your name that you've given to me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you've given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. You spend any time on social media and you've seen memes, right? All those little sayings that get stuck in your head. And <clears throat> if you didn't know, uh, Martin Luther King is pretty popular. And rightly so. I mean, he said so many beautiful things worthy of remembering. Justice, equality, and compassion. I mean, it's really powerful stuff. But his, his stuff on silence kind of sticks out to me. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? The, the one who passively accepts evil as, is as much involved in it as the one who helps to perpetrate it. The one who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. Or in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Or history will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the strident clamor of the bad people, 
but the appalling silence of the good people. Now, among other things that Dr. King taught us, he helped us better understand that silence can be a form of lying, a way of avoiding having to take responsibility for your actions or your lack of action. You can stand by while injustice is perpetrated without ever saying anything for fear of getting into it. And though you never say a word, by failing to own your own life, it's possible to commit a sin against the truth. When you're a kid, they tell you not to lie, right? Honesty is always the best policy. I mean, that's what they say, isn't it? When you get older and you start reading the New York Times, they modify the wording a little bit and it comes out, the cover-up is always worse than the crime. But it all means pretty much the same thing. Life is always a lot easier if you tell the truth. Except, it's not always easier, is it? It's way more difficult to tell the truth sometimes. It's easier to fire up the Wagon Queen family truckster and take off without leaving your insurance information. It's easier not to take responsibility to let somebody else take the blame. Easier to keep your mouth shut, let those who must bear injustice do so under the heavy load of your silence. Because, as Dr. King's life teaches us, speaking up can get you killed. Honesty is always the best policy. Unless you don't think you'll get caught. The cover-up is always worse than the crime. That is, unless nobody ever finds out about the plumbers in the Watergate Hotel. Then lying looks like the most effective strategy. Right? We have politicians who've have, must have that embroidered on their underwear. So here's today's moral lesson from Uncle Derek. Keep quiet. And if you can't keep quiet, then lie. Lie your rear end off. Unless it looks like you're going to get nailed, then, by all means, sing like a canary. Roll over, drop dime, tell the truth. I mean, isn't that what today's gospel lesson is all about? Life is tough. If you get the chance, make it easier on yourself. Things are complicated enough. Following Jesus should be user-friendly. You shouldn't have to put up with any more than is absolutely necessary. And if anything threatens to get your world tied up in knots, don't worry, Jesus will fix it for you. I mean, that's pretty much the gist of what Jesus is saying in our gospel for today, isn't it? No? I can, I can see the disapproval on your faces. Am I not getting this right? Because I, sh I should really read this stuff more carefully before Sunday morning. All right, look, if I'm headed down the wrong path here, let's go back and see if we can get pointed in the right direction. So what's going on in our passage in John this morning? Well, the scene begins all the way back in chapter 13. Jesus and the disciples are gathered together Thursday night, 
eve of his coming violent death at the hands of the Roman authorities, washed the disciples' feet. He's predicted his betrayal at the hands of one of his trusted lieutenants. And he predicts the heartbreaking denials by one of his other disciples. And he starts talking to, about going to a place that disciples can't follow. And they say, well, who are you leaving? And things on the political front are pretty well stirred up. Something's getting ready to happen. Everybody can feel it. Whatever it is, is in the air. Jesus has made all the wrong people mad, and the whole Judean population knows something's ready to hit the fan. Now, you can imagine the disciples are pretty well freaked out by now. I mean, their world is about to implode, it feels like to them, and Jesus is talking about bugging out. Who's going to stay with us? Don't worry, I'm, I'm sending along somebody to look after you. And they're skittish. You can, you can see it in their eyes. Come on, Jesus, I mean, throw us a bone here. We're feeling extremely exposed. Can't you, can't you offer us some assurance, protection, something? In our gospel for this morning, Jesus turns his eyes toward heaven and he starts praying. God, so here we are. You sent me here for this very moment. Glorify me that I may glorify you. You give me some friends, and I showed them who you really are. So I'm praying for them. Protect them. I've protected them since I've been here, but now I'm heading out, so you'll have to look out for them for me. And really, we kind of owe it to them since everybody hates them now because of me. Now, as the prayer progresses, the disciples are doing pretty well. It's tough out there. Keep an eye on them when I leave. Yeah, that's all good stuff. Disciples are kind of peeking, looking at one another, nodding their heads. See, I told you he wouldn't leave us high and dry. God's going to look out for us. We'll be fine. And they're relieved, right? They're sure that they were going to be left holding the bag, but it looks like Jesus is going to take care of them. The pressure is lightening up a little bit. And they say, you know, as long as there's a backup plan, we, we should be pretty good, I guess. But Jesus keeps, being, uh, keeps praying. He's being realistic. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I'm asking you to protect them from the evil one. Okay, fine. We've got to stay here, but we'll have some protection. It's not a perfect solution, but it's a start. But then Jesus makes a real mess out of everything. What's his plan? What are the amazing forces against uh, unleashed to protect Jesus' followers from the evil that they will encounter? Got to be something good, right? Maybe an invisibility cloak or a longsword with maximum hit points or some kind of escape portal when things get rough. I mean, something. But what does Jesus ask for? truth. Wait, what? That's it? Really? Sanctify them in truth? I mean, that's the plan? They're supposed to hide behind the truth? And I can understand that, that, that kind of skepticism. I mean, I go to God, I'm anxious, I'm afraid, and I'm looking for God to do something big. 
If not take me out of the world, then at least do something more than what Jesus is praying for. If not take me out of the world, then at least overhaul the world so it's not such a big threat. Fix the world, God. That, I mean, that's what we need. It's, it's just too dangerous as things stand now. Life's getting too uncertain. But instead, Jesus' answer to the impending danger his disciples face is to ask that they may be made holy in the truth. Well, what does that even mean, sanctify them in truth? Now, in my experience, the truth can get you into a lot of hot water. You tell people the truth, and you're setting yourself up for a great deal of animosity from folks who are more satisfied to embrace the lies. But Jesus doesn't say, look, God, things are fixing to get hairy for my friends here, so please help them speak honestly. Although, of course, he expects that, too. Instead, he prays that his followers will be sanctified in truth. But if Jesus isn't just saying, make sure to tell the truth no matter what, well, then what is he saying? Well, I think that Jesus prays that his disciples will be sanctified in truth, not as a way of taking them out of the world, but as a way of embracing the world in which they already live. Not the world they imagine God should surely want if God were paying attention to the way things are currently situated. The disciples are looking for a world where everything turns out well for the good guys, a world where the cost of following Jesus is, is minimal, uh, comes with a low-cost guarantee. But according to Jesus, this world is the one we've got to work with. And God wants to bless it, not the one we think would be worth blessing. This one, all all of its messiness and violence and pettiness and in all of its craven sneaking around and blazon, uh, brazen wantonness. And you say, well, but how is that supposed to protect Jesus' followers? I mean, how is embracing the truth going to help when what really appears necessary is a heart transplant? Well, if you spend much time around people in recovery, you'll eventually hear somebody say, Ugh. I went through hell, but even if given a chance, I wouldn't change it. You say, what? If you could go back and change your life, you wouldn't do it? I mean, even though it's caused you and so many others inexpressible pain, why not? And the answer is always, because I would never be who I am if I hadn't lived that life. I could never be who I am without being who I was. Did you hear that? That's called owning your life. It's called the truth. And once you've been through the fire of truth, there's nothing left to fear. So if you can own your life, if you can tell yourself the truth about who you are, then you need not ever be afraid. You've already confronted that which can harm you most. 
Now, my first reaction is to want Jesus to pray for it to be easy. <laughs> I want him to protect me from the world by installing some kind of force field, some, some, some heat shield around me that, that, that won't let the slings and arrows touch me. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he prays not that there be a protective wall around me to guard me against the damage that life can cause, but that I can endure that damage, that I can embrace the truth that life is full of fear and horror, but that God is with me in it. Because Jesus knows that if we who follow him can't speak the truth, can't live the truth, then everything we have to say is going to be very easily dismissed. I mean, if we find ourselves hedging our bets over speaking about what's true, why should anybody take us seriously when we talk about a better world? If we can't say together and with a straight face that taking food out of the mouths of children or cutting the Social Security and health care for older Americans, taking away support from college students, making people who've already been abused by the world work in order to justify the money they get because they can't find work, then why would anybody ever listen to us again? I mean, if we people who say we love Jesus can't manage to get together around taking a stand against Islamophobia, against the slander of refugees, against the determination by the government to break up families of the undocumented, then our salt has lost its saltiness. If we can't muster up the courage to say that Jesus cares most intensely about how we speak about a society that allows the apparent state-sanctioned killing of black people by the police, or that women should have autonomy over their own bodies, or that our transgender family and friends shouldn't be the target of overweening fuss budgets convinced they know best for, what, uh, for everybody else in the world, well, then why should anybody care what we have to say about Jesus? who lived and died for all those people whom the nation's self-appointed hall monitors so easily condemn. See, implicit in his prayer, Jesus promises not that we'll be protected from the truth of an often hostile and scary world, but that the truth will protect us from being undone by that world. It is the absurd, paradoxical notion that it is our very vulnerability that protects us. What? What does that mean? <clears throat> Let me see if I can get at it another way. I've mentioned it before, but I grew up in Michigan. And that means, uh, apparently, unlike some folks in the South, I learned to drive in the snow. Not you, of course. I mean, I had to. If, if, if you don't know how to drive in the snow where I'm from, then you gotta sit in your house and watch reruns of Gilligan's Island for five months out of every year. Where I come from, they teach you a few things about driving in the snow that are absolutely counterintuitive. Like, like if you, Start to skid, don't hit the brakes. What, are you crazy, what? 
Brakes, if you didn't know, are those contraptions they put on modern motor vehicles as an aid to stopping. If you don't put on the brakes, you can't stop. Now, I know, I, I know it sounds bananas, but hitting the brakes when you're skidding in the snow is like the absolute worst thing you can do. Here's another one. If your car starts to skid, not only should you not hit the brakes, you should steer into the skid. If you're losing control of the car and it's skidding to the right, you should turn your steering wheel to the right. Look, I, I know, it, it sounds nuts. And I have neither the time nor the intellectual wattage necessary to explain the physics of it. Leaning into a skid feels like the absolute worst thing you can do, but it can save your life. I know. As someone who's driven thousands of miles in the snow, you're just going to have to trust me on this. But Jesus, it, the truth exposes us. It makes us vulnerable. We want some protection. Jesus says, being exposed by the truth is the greatest protection you have. If you've been exposed by the truth, there's nothing left to hide. Lean into it. Hide behind it. As someone who laid down his life in the name of truth, Jesus says, you're just going to have to trust me on this one. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.